very few things as a pastor that warm my heart more than hearing our children praying together with us as the body of Christ, learning the words that the Lord has given us and beginning to appropriate those as their own, as disciples of the living God. I know you as parents, that encourages your heart as well. Brethren, if you'd stand together, we're going to read together from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod, and, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And, they, and they, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Father, thank you for this word. May we, as the wise men today, may we rightly see and follow the star, follow the light. May we reject all darkness in ourselves, in our, in our families, in your people. And may we follow hard after Jesus Christ with faithful hearts, with unshakable hearts, wherever he would lead us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. A fire, a light, a shining star, a sign to those who journey far, a token from the King of Heaven, a spark as to the light of the world, a beacon burning in the night, a star to echo endless light, a darkened world, a light from a stable and high above the heavens ablaze. A light of hope to everyone, a light that outshines every sun, a light the world has not comprehended, a light that is this holy babe. A star will rise from Jacob's house, a scepter out of Israel. And though thou art the least in Judah, or thee, O Bethlehem, 
his light will shine. Those of you who are a little older may recognize those words. Those are from a song by Brother Michael Card. It's called Jacob's Star. If you haven't listened to that, go put that on your Spotify playlist and listen to it ASAP. He, hit, he hits this passage right on the head. Brethren, as we consider today what transpired there, and we just read about in Matthew 2, 1 through 11, we're going to see, I want you to see, this is not fundamentally about three magi following a star. That, that, that's a, a vitally important part of the story. This is not fundamentally about Herod and his vileness, his wickedness. It's, it's not fundamentally about Mary. Rather, in the star, literally, <laughs> of, of this story is the child, but more as, as was said here, his star. And we're going to see today that that star actually was a fulfillment, a very direct and deliberate fulfillment of the prophecy that we read about earlier in Numbers 24. That Balaam, Balaam, who received words from God, this Gentile from Mesopotamia, but nevertheless who received words from the living and true God, that he spoke and foresaw, prophesied about this star that would rise out of Judah and the scepter, and that to the astonishment of not only the Magi, but to the complete thwarting of Herod, and all those that sought to crush the light, that that star actually, even as was prophesied back in Numbers, turned out and would turn out to be their complete and utter undoing. And it's just as Jesus told us in John 3, we're told there that the light had come into the world and men loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. They would not come to the light. But... We're also told there that those that come into the light, that they that come into that light of Christ, that they see truth. Their sins are exposed, yes, their hearts are laid wide open, but they are transformed by it, whether Jew or Gentile. And really, brethren, that is the fundamental call of this text today. I'm just going to look at this really under two headings. Number one, I'm going to consider some of the context for the appearance of this star. Um, and then secondly, we're going to look uh, just at some of the responses that we're, we see here because they're very instructive for us. Number one, I'm going to consider the context that we see here. We're, we're told here right at the very outset, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's when the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and so on. So... We're going to start, I just want to, you may not have thought this, but if you've ever read the accounts in Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2, sometimes it's helpful to think in terms of chronology. How do these things fit together? When exactly, when exactly did this all happen? When did these wise men that we read about, this star, when did this happen in terms of the big picture? Um, well, we know, first of all, we know historically, uh, I won't get into all the details of this, there's all kinds of stuff, but Jesus was born around 5 or 6 B.C. in our current Gregorian calendar that we use, not zero. Um, he was born about 5 or 6 B.C. into this world. 
uh, the incarnate uh, Lord. We know that Herod died around 4 B.C., 3 or 4 B.C., so within a couple of years after Jesus' incarnation, the Herod of whom we read about dies. He died about 65 to 70 years old. We know, uh, so, so the wise men's visit was after, right around that time. But it was, it was, uh, we also know that it was after the angelic announcement to the shepherds, we read about that in Luke 2, on the night of Jesus' birth, and they're coming to see and honor Him. You remember, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Luke 2 we read about on the night that Jesus was born, uh, and the angelic hosts in the sky above uh, there saying, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, unto you is born this day a Savior, Jesus our Lord. That all happened. Uh, we know that that had already happened the night Jesus was born, um, and the shepherds had gone, and it says, And they made known abroad the saying which was told them uh, concerning this child. And all they that heard it, Luke 2, 17, 18 says, wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, I want to keep that in mind because this is going to become an, an important thing a little bit later on. But the shepherds, having seen this, they didn't just keep it quiet. They voiced it abroad. And I think this comes into play when we get into Matthew 2. We also know that the wise men came uh, again, from Luke 2, after Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day, we read about there in Luke 2, and when his parents took him up to dedicate him to the Lord in Jerusalem, which would have been on the 40th day, after Mary's uh, days of purification, it says there in Luke 2. We also know that you know uh, this would have happened uh, after Simeon's prophecy. We read about that in Luke 2, 30-35, about um, the, the, the Lord blessing him and letting him be there to see uh, the Lord's uh, letting His servant now depart in peace according to His word, uh, for He had seen the salvation of Israel. And we read there about Anna, uh, the, the, old, the old woman prophetess who had dedicated herself to the Lord and how she immediately seeing Jesus rejoiced and then went and proclaimed to all uh, that would listen about the, uh, the, the Savior born. Again, what a marvelous thing. And it spoke to Him, it says, of all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem, Luke 2.38. We know that also by the chronology that the, the, shepherd, the wise men's visit happened after Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem. It appears that after the, their visit to Jerusalem for Jesus' dedication and Simeon and Anna and all that, that they returned back to Galilee from Luke 2.39. And they, first, uh, they, they eventually returned back to Galilee, but first they returned to Bethlehem. To Matthew 2.11, in this text today it says here, this is key, when they came into the house... Now, Jesus, we know from Luke, was born in a manger, born in a stable. So at some point, Mary and Joseph had gone back, and now it says that they had a house. They stayed in Bethlehem for a time. Uh, the reasons may be for that. Joseph, a carpenter, that the ancestral city uh, of David uh, is where the king of kings should be, right? The house of David. So we don't know, but it appears they, they went back to Bethlehem at least for a time. Uh, they returned to Bethlehem to a house where they were then staying, um, and like I said, Joseph probably found work there in his ancestral city as a carpenter. Maybe he even planned to stay uh, and just make their home there now. It was most likely, the shepherd, the wise men's visit was most likely at some point then after this, after they returned to Bethlehem, possibly up to a year or more later that the wise men followed the star and arrived then at this house, not a manger. They arrived at this house in Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary and Jesus were. 
And it was the, the Magi's subsequent spirit-guided decision, you remember, that we see in this text today, to disobey Herod and to return home by another way that led to Herod's demonically induced wrath and the slaughter of children two years and under. Now, this is important. Two years and under in Bethlehem, before which the angel of the Lord warned Mary and Joseph to leave Bethlehem, flee to Egypt, to preserve uh, the Lord Jesus until Herod died. And we know that was just within about another year or so. So that's the chronology. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, it would stand to reason, I'm, I'm going to say this too, if the Magi first saw the star, we'll talk about that in a minute, but in the east or shortly after Jesus was born, if that's when they first saw it, it would still have taken them at that time a long time to cross the deserts from the Arabia to arrive in there. Uh, maybe many months in their caravan from Arabia and Mesopotamia to come to Jerusalem. So when Herod questioned them in this text today about when they first saw the star, verse 7, it had likely been many months that had elapsed. And this then explains also why Herod sought to kill the, the boys two years and under because there was a time lapse there, right? And then it was then very shortly after the wise men left that Joseph and Mary fled, as I said, to Egypt. And they stayed there until Herod died in 4 B.C., at which point the Lord uh, warned them and, and called them to return. And we're told here uh, in the text that they were on the way back, but when they learned that Herod's son, Archelaus, uh, we see that after in Matthew 2, a little bit later down, that when Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning, the Lord led them, and they, instead of going back to Bethlehem, they decided to go back where this all started, back to Galilee where they had been at the beginning by God's sovereign design that it would be fulfilled the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. The point is, brethren, I've just given you chronology. That's data. But I want you to see the Lord's providential hand in this. Data is, a, is data, but you need to see the hand of God's providence providentially protecting the Christ child. Providentially ordaining every detail of this and the timing of the wise men's coming uh, and, and all of this. And, and that's, this, as I said, this should give us some confidence of the Lord's sovereign control over every detail. It's easy when you look at something like this, like, well, this is nice, it's a nice story, but we tend to miss the hand of sovereign God and His goodness in arranging all of these things. And that just reminds us again that He is sovereign over our lives for good. He protects His people. He ordains every detail of our lives. Every hair of our head is numbered. Every moment of your life, day by day, is under the sovereign and good directive hand of the living God. So draw courage from that, brethren. So let's ask them, second question, who were these wise men? Or as the text says, the magi, literally. Who were these, it says, these magi from the east? In the ancient Middle Eastern world, magi were trusted advisors to kings. They were learned men who were proficient generally in knowledge of mathematical calculations, astronomy, medicine, astrology, alchemy. Uh, they interpreted dreams uh, and so on, and uh, histories, history of, of, of practicing um, uh, medicinal, sometimes in certain contexts, magical arts, but not always. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't a given. But as far back even as 604 B.C., we see King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had troubling dreams. We read about this in, uh, in Daniel. I mean, back in, uh, he had had dreams right after Daniel and his friends arrived. And he summoned, it says, Daniel 2.2, summoned the magicians, the magi, enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. 
Her, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, his magi, couldn't interpret his dreams, but Daniel was able to ascertain the meaning, and Nebuchadnezzar made him, you remember, his prime minister. This is in Daniel chapter 2. Ancient kings, what we see here is they needed, they relied upon, among others, their magi for advice, for discernment, as modern rulers turn to their own advisors. Magi in the Bible that we read about here in Matthew 2, it says they came from the east. The east at this time was at the time of Jesus' birth meant the lands far to the east. So this would have been the lands of the Medes and the Persians, the lands of the Assyrians. Think to the place from which the Israelites had returned from exile, Babylon, Susa. That was the east. So the wise men, we don't know exactly where, but from somewhere over in that vicinity, northern Arabia, they came a long ways, a long ways across the Arabian desert on this journey in this caravan to come and follow this star. That's the context we need there. Well, let's ask the question, and one more question. What was the star? We said the star here is the star of the show, literally. Well, what was this star? I'm not going to get deep here just to say that I don't believe, um, uh, first of all, maybe this doesn't go without saying, but sometimes it needs to be said. It wasn't, I don't believe this was a gaseous, fusion-generated, super-hot, self-luminous, heavenly body like we think of the sun. In the, sky, in the sky, and there's a reason. I'll explain that in a minute. I don't. Some have postulated that maybe it was like an exploding supernova or a comet, or maybe it was a, 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 a some planets that came together in planetary alignment. It was bright. The challenge with all of these explanations, brethren, is that we see here one that the star appeared only to the wise men in the east initially, right? What we see in this text is they didn't, apparently hadn't seen anything about this from Jerusalem. They didn't have any, nobody had seen this. If this was a, truly a, a big star in the sky up in the heavens, there, that's impossible that it would have only been seen by the wise men. All right? Everybody would have seen this. They wouldn't be talking and saying, what star are you talking about when they arrived to Jerusalem? It would have been there. Secondly, the star was one that actually moved and guided them. Again, if this was a comet, a supernova, a planetary alignment, brethren, that's not that, you know, comets and supernovas don't just do that sort of thing. So, so I, I'm, I'm going to just tell you the question about what is the star. Um, I hold the position, and, and I think it's biblically, I don't think I'm, the only, I'm not the only one who holds this, is that this was in fact a manifestation of what we call the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. The same brightness of light that appeared above the tabernacle, filled it, that led the people of Israel in, in, in the wilderness and brightness of night. The Lord, the glory of the living God. The word star, austere in the Greek, uh, doesn't, it just simply means a luminous body in the heavens. It doesn't, like I said, mean uh, a big ball of fire like we think of the sun and planetary stars, right? It just means a bright light in the heavens. And what we see here was, I believe, a clear manifestation of the Shekinah glory of the living God that appeared in the, in the, above in the east where the wise men could see it. And they perceived, and we'll see in a minute, they perceived this as a fulfillment of a prophecy that they knew about, that they had heard about. But that was able to lead them and the Lord just as He led His people in the wilderness the cloud by day and the fire by night, so too the glory. He led the wise men and they followed him. They followed the glory of the Lord all the way to Jerusalem. I think this is a marvelous, uh, this, this, this visible manifestation of the visible glory of God, uh, of this star, the royal angelic glory of the angel of the Lord. 
the one who is the incarnate word, the glory, the light of the world, literally. The star was bright, glorious, like I said, light that was visible to the wise men in the eastern sky, and they followed it uh, all the way to Jerusalem. And when the star finally appeared with the wise men in Jerusalem, then it came to pass, it says that the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who sat in the region of shadow of death, light has dawned and shined. We're told in Luke 178 that Jesus is coming. It says that in Jesus, the day spring from on high has visited us. Jesus, as we saw in Revelation chapter 22, refers to himself as the bright and morning star. Now, there is certainly a sense true in which that's figurative. You know. But brethren, Jesus is the glory, not only the character, but the visible manifestation of the glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. When that glory of Jesus' flesh was unveiled just for a moment, it was blinding says that it was whiter than any fuller's uh, uh, able to make white, right? The glory of Jesus that was hidden in flesh, the bright and morning star. But I don't know if that answers all the questions, but I do believe this was a visible manifestation of the glory of God uh, that led these wise men across the desert all the way to Jerusalem. And I think it very much follows that pattern. And as I said, it also fulfills a prophecy. Turn again to Numbers 24, verse 17. I know we looked at this earlier, but I want you to see this as we consider this. Numbers 24. Let me read it. Uh, I'm just going to read verse 17 to 19 again. Balaam's prophecy very specifically, um, when we get past that, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Again, this was about, what, about 1400 B.C.? Uh, as far as we know, about 1400 B.C. He says, I behold him not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, which is another name for the mountains where Edom and the, and the sons of Esau lived. Seir, also his enemies, shall be a possession while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. What's he talking about there? First of all, remember Balaam, uh, the one who gave this prophecy in Numbers 24. Balaam, we're told in Scripture that he was a true prophet of God. It makes it, make no mistake about that. He was one who received revelations from God. 2 Peter chapter 2 affirms this also in verse 16. Where Numbers chapter 22, a couple chapters earlier, affirms that Balaam dwelt, it says, by Pithor, which is actually a river uh, in the land of Mesopotamia. And that's where Lot, that's where uh, Lot, and from whom the Moabites and Balak were originally descended, and so on. Balak, the king of Moab, which is who, the one who called Balaam at this time. And so we see that the Lord's bringing this around. And the phrase, the river also, uh, as we see there, that, uh, uh, that the river is, uh, that always in Scripture refers to the Euphrates River. So we know that Balaam was a, a, a prophet of God, but he was from back in the land of Abraham. He was from the land, incidentally, where these magi came from 1,400 years before, prophesying about a star that would arise out of Jacob. And that should give us some context then for how perhaps these magi knew about this star. Isn't it interesting that all through this time, the Lord had preserved knowledge of His Word even all the way back in Mesopotamia. God did not leave them without a light. I find that remarkable. 
that the Lord was doing this and working this all together. And so um, it's likely, as I said, that the wise men were aware of this prophecy of Jacob's star. What's interesting, too, is in this text that we just read in Numbers 24, it says that this star, this scepter that would come would arise out of Jacob's house and that he would crush, destroy the mountains of Seir. What's interesting is if you know about the background of King Herod, Herod was, in fact, an Edomite. Oh, that knows anything. He was born in Edomia of Edomite descent. He was a descendant of Esau, an imposter, as it were, put on the end. Jesus, this star, was going to, by this prophecy, he was actually going to be the one that would destroy not only Herod, but would put down all of the enemies of God and those that hated the true people of Jacob. It's a remarkable prophecy. Um, one more. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 60 also. One more. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 through 6, because these are the two prophecies I think are very specifically being referenced here um, that the uh, wise men would have likely have known about, uh, the first one especially, but the second one very much has bearing here. Isaiah chapter 60, let me read verse 1 through 6. It says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. So lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, and their one-humped camels of Midian and Ephah, uh, the dromedaries, all those from Sheba will come. They shall bring gold, they shall bring incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. There's some obvious things here, right? Isaiah is saying that this light is going to rise and that the light that would rise would cast out the deep darkness. It would be a rising of the Lord over the peoples and one that would draw in the Gentiles. The wise men, it's interesting as we see in this text, uh, after the shepherds that were there in Jerusalem, who are the first ones that we see actually coming to pay homage to the king? As we see here, it wasn't those in Jerusalem wasn't Herod. It wasn't those in Jerusalem at all. Rather, after the shepherds, the first ones we see coming were these, these Gentiles from across the desert to give praises to the king of kings. Isn't that remarkable how the Lord orchestrated that? It is the Gentiles, ultimately, and that just is the way of the Lord, that the Gentiles come in first, and then the Jews. The gospel goes forth. The light goes forth to the world and it draws in the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the four corners of the world and gathers them one flock under one shepherd, even Jesus, this holy child. And as it says here, they come with their camels from Midian, from Ephah, on the ends of the world. They bring their gold and incense. Uh, I think that's just marvelous. I can't help but wonder if the wise men uh, had in fact known this passage and maybe had reference and maybe this has to do with why they brought the gifts they did. We're not going to look at the gifts in depth today. That may be another sermon. But uh, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh are actually very instructive, uh, very full of, of meaning and implications. But just notice there that they brought their gifts. They brought their best gifts. So 
that turns into point two. And lastly, as we see them doing this, this, the text gives us three responses to this light, to this star. And, and I think for us, honestly, as we look at this from an application standpoint, this really gives us clear ways of thinking in terms of what the obedience of faith looks like. Number one, I'm pointing in, just look first of all at the response of the wise men, of the magi. And I've classified it here as wonder, wonder, and worship. Right? They, they, saw, they saw the truth in scriptures. They saw this manifestation of the Shekinah glory of the living God, of the glory, the light. And they followed it because they saw, had the word of God. They believed it. And so they, they did something incredible. I mean, just put some context here. These, these magi left in a caravan to travel all the way across the Arabian desert, hundreds and hundreds of miles. This was a, you know, a thousand mile journey. It would have taken many, many, many weeks, months to do this. What, what an amazing act of faith to do this in the first place. That, that tells you something about their earnestness of desire to see the king of kings that they themselves acknowledged as the king over all kings. That they would do this to come bow and give him these incredible gifts, to travel that far. It tells you something about their faith. Brethren, the Magi... I believe with all my heart they were believers. They trusted in Jehovah. They're brethren. We're going to see them in heaven. They came to the King of Kings and they rejoiced in him because they believed. The Lord, as it says, has brought them near who once were afar off, Ephesians 2.18. And then in their glorious picture of the gospel, we who were once afar off, the Lord has brought us near, not only from Arabia, brethren, but from Illinois. <laughs> Here in America, like Rich Mullen says, the Holy King of Israel loves me here in America. An amazing thing. Even Illinois. <laughs> the wise men sought and then they followed the light of the world. Jesus calls himself in John eight twelve. He says, I am the light of the world. If any man follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's what these wise men did. That's what all true seekers do, brethren. There are, you know, we, we live in an age... You know, and even the church, we talk about seeker sensitivity and beaker, seeker friendly. I will tell you, brethren, we're not, we, we will never, a resurrection church, modify our worship with a seeker sensitive approach. Um, but, but that being said, brethren, I also want to acknowledge biblically there is such a thing as true seekers. But what do seekers do? When they see the light, it's not the lights of a stage show or of a fog machine, <laughs> right? But when they see the light of truth, they're hungry for it. And they say, I, I don't know where this is going, but I'm going to follow that. Teach me more. They, go to, they, they show up in a church like ours and they say, I just, I, teach me more. I want to know about this Jesus. Brethren, that, that's a seeker. <laughs> and I want us to always be a church that is earnest and eager when we have true seekers show up in our midst to point them to the light of the world. Because if that's what they're here for, brethren, we're going to be able to show them that by our works, by our words, by opening the words of Scripture and saying, let us tell you about this Jesus, this light that we have come to know, whose glory dwells in us. 
That's a marvelous thing that we who are now the light of the world have the light of the world in us. And we are used of the Lord to bring other seekers like these wise men to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. These wise men desired to worship. It says, you notice, they, they yearnestly desired to worship the Messianic King of kings. And they wanted to be at peace and service to His kingdom. That's what we read here. They came and they bowed and they worshipped. And they brought their best gifts they knew to whom the kingdom belonged. They knew about this star that would come out of Jacob, about this scepter that would crush all other kingdoms, that would exalt his people Israel and would bring in the promised, long-promised kingdom. Right? They believed. I love this. They brought their best gifts to the king of kings, not like a little skit I saw here recently. The wise men, they brought their gold, their frankincense, and myrrh. They didn't bring a gift card. They brought their best because they knew who this was. When we think in the scriptures, what is your reasonable service of worship, saints? Is it not to lay yourselves down, your possessions, and all that we have as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord? Is that not what pleases the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is it not that we entrust all that we have to Him and say, Lord, everything is at Your service. It's at Your beck. You're the one who gives, and to You it is dedicated. He will always meet our needs, but it's that mindset. The, the wise men didn't come, and they weren't the least bit stingy. They were extraordinarily austere in the things they gave to the King of kings because they loved Him. And again, I think this is just an evidence of the sincerity and the truth of their faith. Secondly, not only were there wise men, though, there were also wicked men. Look here, we see here, uh, specifically Herod. And whereas the wise men were characterized, these true seekers, as wander and wonder and worship wicked men, we look at Herod, especially, worry, wily, and wrath. <laughs> All right? look, at, look at Herod. It says that he was troubled. You see there in the text, it says, Herod, when he heard this, verse 3, he was troubled in all Jerusalem. His spirit was gravely troubled in, in him. He, he was full of worry. What we see in Herod was a man who was supremely interested in preserving his own power, right? his own line. This thought of, a, of a, the king of kings, this return of a descendant of David who would fulfill the prophecies and would set up again the, long, uh, the Davidic kingdom that would have no end. Herod didn't love that God. He, he, may have been, uh, he may have been ruling in Jerusalem, but I assure you, brethren, that Herod had no love for the living God. He had no love for Jehovah. He was concerned only about himself. And this is, isn't this, this, this the way that those who don't love the living God, when providence comes and messes with their plans at self-preservation and self-assertion, what do they inevitably do? They're troubled. They fear. Instead of turning to the one who casts all fears away, in faith and in His presence, they, they double down all the more and they dig their heels in to defend their turf, to defend themselves, whatever it is. This is what wicked, unbelieving people do. They're troubled. And you notice what Herod did then in his actions. It says he gathers first the religious leaders. Right? 
He starts by, says he gathered there to himself all the chief priests and the scribes together. And he used them as it were. He says, so, so you wise religious leaders, you, you know, those who are esteemed as, as the, uh, in the religious circles, these ecclesiastical uh, patriarchs and so on. Tell me, tell me, when did this prophecy uh, that the wise men said, when is this supposed to happen, right? And they gave him, of course, from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What's interesting, I won't have you turn there, but later today, go read Micah 4 and 5. Micah chapter 4, the context of this starts about that in the latter days the Lord would set up his kingdom in Zion and all the nations would pour into it with their glory. And it would be a kingdom that would rule over all. But it also says that in, in, in the beginning of Micah chapter 5, he says the Lord gathers his troops and calls his troops together to fight war against his enemies. And it's in that context that we read then, but out of you, Bethlehem, one will come to be the ruler of my people Israel. Translation, the king of kings is going to come. And what's he going to do, though? He is going to set up that everlasting kingdom, the one that's going to crush the head of the wicked. Even the passage they quoted from him here in Micah 5, had Herod had enough sense to inquire about the context, he would have seen that this Savior was going to be his demise and was going to do something that he couldn't begin to stop no matter how hard he tried. So he gathers the religious leaders, and I'm going to call them the, the scribes and Pharisees here, the false worshipers. Again, it's interesting. Do you notice? These are the scribes and Pharisees. They gave him the right answer. The Messiah is coming out of, Judah, of Bethlehem and Judah. Here we are. We have wise men from the east saying they've seen a star and have just come across the Arabian desert a thousand miles to worship him. You would think that these scribes and religious leaders, having heard the testimony, wouldn't you think, my goodness, this is what we just talked about, Micah 5.2. We should go too and see him. Not what they did, is it? Herod was troubled. All Jerusalem, it says, verse 3, was troubled with him. Scribes and the Pharisees, uh, scribes, the priests, as far as we know, as we can tell, they gave Herod the right answer. And wasn't that nice? Back to life as normal. <laughs> tell you what, wise men, you go and find him for us. That's fine. That's what Herod did, right? You, tell you what, why don't you go find him for me in his deception, his wiliness, his unrighteousness, because he was seeking to use them to wage war against the king of kings. I think that's remarkable how when religious people, and here's an application, when religious people are not... Are, are, are only outwardly religious like the scribes and Pharisees, when their religion is purely external and they're more worried about the outside of the cup than true, zealous worship of the living God from the heart, they end up becoming pawns in the hands of wicked men and tyrants. You notice that? What have we seen the past three years? <laughs> what have we seen? Church after church after church where there was just, you know, the only thing, the only interest, so, so often just, hey, you know what, as long as we can just keep our outward services going, we can keep on an appearance of religiosity, it doesn't matter. As long as they don't, uh, as long as they let us gather 
uh, each Lord's Day, or uh, many not even caring, as long as we can just keep up the appearance of religion, we'll do whatever they tell us to do. I think that's very uh, remarkable. Brethren, if we are going to be followers of the living God and love the star, love the light, there will come a place, and we're going to see the wise men will do this, right, where there will have to be a holy, righteous disobedience. The wise men were doing righteously to not return to Herod, to, to defy a godless ruler. I want to just keep that in mind. Allegiance to the king of kings will at times put us in opposition of necessity to those who are not in allegiance to him and seek to undo and undermine his truth in his church. I'm reminded uh, of, of a song, you know, I remember Jamie Souls. You know, talk about Jamie Souls. Jamie Souls has this interesting song. One of, one of the most neat little tunes he's ever written is called Tool. Let me just read to you the words of this. He's talking about Caesar in this context, in the context of Matthew 2 and Luke 2. But listen to what he says. He says, Caesar thought that he could move the world. His tongue waved and the earth turned. He spoke a word and scrolls would be un- unfurled. And fools quaked. And the wise learned. Caesar's word was law throughout the land. And all men did the things that he planned. Presumed all things were in his hand, and no one was above. So Caesar spoke, and the scribes wrote, and the seal sealed, the horses saddled, the riders flew, the inns prepared, the roads repaired, the ships set sail, the heralds cried, the governor heard and got to work, and sent the world, and sent the word throughout the land that made the carpenter leave his tools and find a donkey and take his bride and unborn child to Bethlehem, which God had planned beforehand. Caesar thought he could move the world, but God did, and Caesar was his tool. So was Herod. So was Biden. <laughs> so was Pritzker. Don't lose heart, brethren. Last response then, and again, I just want to point this out. Religious men. I made this point, I was going to... Whereas the wise men, you know, they followed the star. Wicked men fought against the star, fought against the light. The outwardly, worldly religious... The term I use here is they, they flout it. That's not a word we use often, but the idea of flouting something, it just means you ignore it. You spurn it, right? That's what it means. They just, eh, meh. <laughs> Another light, no big deal. Business as usual. That was the way these religious men we see in this text, they, they were troubled only about protecting their status, their personal peace, their affluence, their having people, as the scribes and priests call them rabbi, rabbi, and so on. They weren't least bit interested in getting dirty and going and following these wise men to Bethlehem to see about this prophecy and this king of kings. No interest whatsoever. They gave lip service to Jehovah, but their hearts, in fact, were far from him. They were, as I said, they were quite willing to pacify and support and become pawns of wicked rulers. And they were very worldly minded. Their hope, the things that they clearly were set their affections on were the things of this world. Flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. 
like 1 John 2 talks about. And because they were so in love with the world and its present things, they were unwilling to seek and follow and pursue God's true king and his kingdom. They were all good with Herod because Herod, even though he was a wicked tyrant, at least Herod was letting them practice their religion without, uh, and keep up appearances without too much difficulty as long as they played by his rules. Right? They loved darkness more than light. They wouldn't come to the light lest their sins and their hearts would be exposed by the light of the world. So brethren, just in closing then, here's the application. I've just told you what this text has told us is that Jesus is the light. He's the glory, literally the star, the bright and morning star of the world in the darkness. He's the angel of the Lord who is himself the brightness of God's glory. Hebrews 1.3 says, The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, whose glory we beheld, whose light as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews, as the wise men said. He is the Son and the Root of David, Isaiah chapter 11. The Prince of Peace, under whom the increase of His government and peace, His everlasting kingdom will have no end, Isaiah 9. He is the long-awaited Star of Jacob, the scepter out of Israel, Numbers 24, that would guide the faithful people of God back to Him, would inaugurate... As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is now in your midst. It's here. It has come. And it would continue and not depart from the house of Judah until Shiloh comes. Think back to Genesis 49 and Jacob's prophecy there. Remember that? He says that the scepter would not depart from uh, Judah until Shiloh comes. What is Shiloh? It's the Hebrew... Back, it refers to Jesus. It's a putting to Jesus, but it also comes from the root from which we get the word shalom. Until the true peace of God comes toward his people and that one of whom is prophesied would come and crush the enemies and bring about the peace of the Lord on earth as it is in heaven. And it says there that to him, in Genesis 49, to him will the gathering of the people of God be. So brethren, the question for you and I is just this then. What are you going to do with this glory? What are you going to do with the light? What are you going to do with the star? I don't look up and I don't see it in my night sky, but brethren, you who have seen Jesus, who have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus, brethren, you see that star. The Lord has opened your eyes. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to go wherever he leads and say, Jesus, we're ready to follow you and bow to you, and we're going to give you our best gifts in faith, because we love you, or are you going to do like the, the, the wicked and fight against him? Or will we be like the religious in this picture who keep up outward appearances of religiosity, but at the end of the day they flout him, they ignore him and spurn him as long as they can keep up appearances? Brethren, my heart for you, Jesus' heart for you as we conclude this text is this, brethren, I want us to be a people. Yes, we're going to come this Christmas and we're going to celebrate. We're giving gifts, receiving gifts. We're going to celebrate Jesus. But brethren, the best thing you can do out of obedience of faith and love for that King of Kings, that babe, is to follow Him. Bow the knee to Him. Trust and obey Him. And love Him above all else. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank you that 
Jesus truly is the star of, of the story, and both literally as well as allegorically. Father, this, this is all about Jesus first to last. And the question for us of whether we will be fully hearted by true faith, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, looking at that star who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and that following Jesus, that light, we will run the race, the journey set before us like the wise men did, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Father, may it be that every one of us in this congregation would see and in seeing would savor and follow Jesus with all of our hearts this year. We would say, the cross, the star before me, the glory before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no compromise. We're going to be all in for Jesus because Jesus, our star, is and has always been all in for us. Father, increase our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.